Welcome back to the Family Law Podcast. We're diving back into the world of court of protection this time, considering the fictional scenario of what might happen if the much-publicised Britney Spears litigation over conservatorship was taking place in this jurisdiction. I can think of no better person to guide us through this than Julian Reed of Pump Court, who is a specialist in where the worlds of civil and family practice overlap. He regularly appears in the court of protection and has been ranked as a leading junior in the Legal 500. He weaves together a practice of court protection with financial remedies, inheritance act work, as well as children work. Julian, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Nice to be here. Pleasure to have you. Um, I'm going to I'm going to dive straight in and ask you a question that you can't really answer because you're not a Californian lawyer. But just to set the scene a little bit, can you help us with when we talk about conservatorship, what do we actually mean? Yes, of course. Um, sadly, I'm not a Californian lawyer, but after a wet day today, I rather wish I perhaps was. It's my understanding that in the United States, conservatorships are typically used to protect people who do not have the ability to manage their finances because they're developmentally disabled or suffer from an illness affecting their capacity and who are therefore vulnerable to financial abuse. Um, typically, conservatorships are used to, or imposed where the conservatee is elderly or permanently impaired and most likely never to be able to manage their finances again. And um, so you say, say that's typically, of the Brittany case seems pretty atypical then. Very much so. She was only 28 years old when a permanent conservatorship was requested by her father, Jamie Spears, after concerns about her mental health in 2008. I think everyone remembers in 2007 when she shaved her head very publicly, and that led to all sorts of concerns about her well-being. Um, so given her age and the time it's been in place, it's very atypical. Um, and uh, yes, I, I mean we, we're now in the situation where where her father's stepped down, and and there's a there's a debate over conservatorship. But I think enough about U.S. law because this is a English law podcast, after all. If we are trying to put this in a in an English context, what concepts do we have here that are comparable? We've got two very similar um, concepts in this country. The first is deputyship, and the second is a power of attorney. Um, there are two types of deputy, firstly, property and affairs, and secondly, health and welfare. Um, a deputy is appointed by the court, whereas a power of attorney is granted by somebody when they've got capacity, usually to a, a relative or close friend. And um, it, it, oh, sorry, Julian, go on. No, no, go on. I was just going to ask if the court was appointing a deputy, what was the test that they have to apply? It's The court's got the power under Section 16 of the Mental Capacity. Um, the court will only do so if a person lacks capacity in relation to their welfare or their property and affairs. And the court uses the test for capacity set out in Section 1 of the Act. Um, that test, I'll, I'll, I'll say the actual wording of it, mm. is unusual. A person lacks capacity in relation to a matter if at the material time he is unable to make a, a decision for himself in relation to the matter because of an impairment of or a disturbance in the functioning of mind or brain. 
it's a real it's it's a, a, a test that affects whether some deals with whether someone is affected in a way that they're not thinking in, in the manner that people ordinarily approach things. Yes, of course, uh, any any lawyer will be familiar with the test anyway, because, of course, we have to be conscious of litigation capacity with our clients, don't we? Absolutely. Um, and usually when the court is looking at the question, there will be reports from experts explaining precisely what the problem is, whether somebody has got capacity, whether it's a temporary problem or whether it's a long term problem. Okay, so so if we're we're going down the deputy route, I, I wonder whether you could take us a bit more through what the court's approach is. Yeah, the, the court um, approaches things on the principles which are set out in Section 1 of the Mental Capacity Act. And there's a number of presumptions within that. Um, it's presumed that a person is assumed to have capacity unless it's established that he lacks capacity. Secondly, um, he's not to be treated as unable to make a decision unless all practicable steps to help him to do so have been taken without success. Um, he is not to be treated as unable to make a decision merely because he makes an unwise one. Um, an act done or decision made on behalf of people who lacks capacity must be done or made in their best interests. And before the act is done or decision made, regard must be had to whether the purpose for which it's needed can be effectively achieved in a way that is less restrictive of P's rights and freedoms of action. And then when the court is evaluating those um, principles, the court goes on to look at section four of the act, which deals with the best interests. And there's a number of factors there in looking at how to promote the best interests of P. It's quite a thorny, that's where a lot of litigation can come from, isn't it? This, what is actually in the best interests? Yeah, you, you can have a lot of disagreement and, and often very legitimate disagreement as to what is right for a person, um, depending on the particular factors, their vulnerabilities uh, and the solutions that can be found for them. Is there anything like, um, speaking as a court of protection ignoramus, we've, I'm used to applying the welfare checklist in deciding what's in a child's best interest. Is there something comparable there? It, it's, it's comparable in the sense that the first few sections of the Act give the aspirations and basic principles to be applied. And whereas you've got the welfare checklist, it's very much best interests. And best interests can be widely interpreted. Um, but it's the same general principle that there are factors like that to look at. Um, so, I mean, any any kind of specific factors that we should be flagging up for listeners? Yeah, um, these past and present wishes and feelings, in particular any relevant written statement made by them when they had capacity is always relevant. Um, the beliefs and values that would be likely to influence uh, P's decision if they'd retained capacity and any other factors that P would consider if they were able to do so. So those are the general principles that, that are looked at. Um, and, and then enshrined within section four in the best interest, there are a number of other factors um, when making decisions. If it's practically inappropriate, um, one should be looking at consultations with people that are closely involved with P, um, people who, there may have been a lasting power of attorney for, um, and engaging in those that be interested in the welfare of, of P. So there's a duty there to look at the people who are closely involved 
and what they say about the situation and how their views can influence the court and assist the court in making a decision. And so wishes, you mentioned wishes and feelings, they'd be obtained regardless of the capacity decision, they're still taken into account. They're very much um, taken into account in terms of um, whether P is able to express any wishes and feelings, because very often um, views will be expressed, but in perhaps not as logical a way as you or I would, would know them to be expressed. And also they may, may have expressed those wishes and feelings in the past. There may be letters of, of wishes or intentions. And of course, um, the court will look at what the views have always been of that person and then why those views may have changed. Mm. It tries to gather as much information as it can to make an informed decision. It occurs to me we, we've slightly skipped over something because we've gone over um, how to the best interest test and everything, but we're assuming there's a deputy that's been appointed. How does how does that process work? Um, in, in terms of the, the appointment of a, of a deputy, um, there's usually an application made. Um, and in, in terms of the application, you, you may find there's a particular problem that's arisen, whether it's health or finances. And you may have um, a close relative that makes the application and the court will then look at whether that person is appropriate and needed to deal with the, the problem. Sometimes you have competing applications where two people want to be a deputy, and sometimes you have applications where a person has been appointed as a deputy and somebody wants to revoke the, the deputyship. That would be akin to what happened with, with Brittany in looking to remove her father. Mm. Those are the, the three general scenarios that arise. Um, and, and in terms of those scenarios, um, I mean, what 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 are, are there principles in particular that we need to bear in mind? Yeah, very much, very much so. It it comes back always with the Mental Capacity Act to the the, the core principles. Firstly, Section One, the basic principles about has someone got capacity and and so forth, um, and then importantly. Um, section four, the best interests. Those are the two overriding um, sections that are always looked at in, in terms of what should and shouldn't happen. And then, of course, of course, the court is then given the wider powers of what it may do in the subsequent sections. But its best interests and general principles are always the starting point. Sure, sure. Um, well, look, we, we, I started this podcast by talking about well, what if Brittany was in this uh, jurisdiction will say what if there was a, an English adult super rich pop star that that, that sadly had uh, a bit of trouble um, what how, how would that work then in that case study it's one of those difficult situations um, I think for many people um, th their family look after them but situations like Brittany um, court intervention is required. And in that situation, what happens is the court has got the power to appoint a deputy under Section 16 of the Mental Capacity Act. The court will only do so if that person lacks capacity in relation to their welfare or their property and affairs, using the test for capacity set out in Section 2.1 of the Act. Under Section 16.3, the power of the court to appoint a deputy, it's subject to what we were just talking about, the principles under section one and the best interest under section four. 
So that's the point you, you just asked about, about how yeah. important those sections are. When the court then exercises its discretion and considers how to do so, the general um, approach is to use as least uh, restrictive an order as is possible and to use the powers very sparingly. So very many different facts and issues may arise in a case which will affect how the court exercises its powers and, and the way in which it thinks they, they should be brought into play. Um, if you've got a, a young, super rich adult, you've then got an issue about who should be appointed as a deputy for that person. And, and oh, sorry, just to pause um, before you go on to that, Julian, I just just clarify, is it likely to be the same deputy for property and welfare or would you have separate individuals? It can be either. Um, it, it depends. Um, Sometimes you'll have one family member, um, a son, a husband, a wife, who will deal with all matters for, for P. Um, there are other occasions where it could be two different people. Um, it just depends on the, the fact-specific nature of a particular case. Sure. Um, I'm sorry, you were talking about who should be appointed as a, as a deputy. It leads on nicely to, to what you've, you've asked um, there. Um, Senior Judge Lush, who's given most of the, um, the leading decisions in this area, in a case called WEAS in 2013, um, indicated he preferred to appoint a family member or close friend if possible. And the logic behind that decision was that a relative or friend would be familiar with P's affairs, their wishes, their methods of communication, and therefore would be better able to consult with P um, and to permit and encourage uh, P's participation in decisions. And whilst he didn't say it was um, a hard and fast rule, he set out um, a general order of preference at paragraph 22 of that case. So it started with a spouse or a partner, then moving to a relative who took a particular interest for, for P, then close friends, then professional advisors. Um, so it's very much that um, idea that you should look for a, a close contact that knew P both to have their trust and to know their wishes and feelings to try and uh, get the best interest for them. And what's the what's the fallback option if there isn't a family member, if there's no professional advisor? Um, two things. You've either got the local authorities who will act for um, P as, as a deputy, particularly if P is already in um, a nursing home or a care home, local authorities will often come forward. The alternative is to have a panel appointed deputy. Um, there's a number of people that have been appropriately qualified and they go on a panel and then they're professionally appointed and they charge their fees to look after um, the de as the deputy and they are then subject to the scrutiny of, of the court. But a panel deputy is usually regarded as someone of last resort. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the a panel deputy charging. How, how does that work if you were effectively a professional deputy again coming back to our case study of the super rich pop star yeah um it's interesting for for a number of ways um in england and wales the deputy is supervised by the office of public guardianship um and they're authorized to contact a deputy and to check what the deputy is doing they're there to give advice to the deputy if there's a problem 
Um, the deputy has to submit an annual report to the Office of Public Guardian. So there's a degree of scrutiny there to know that what has been done is appropriate and appropriate charges. Um, the deputy may also have to set up a security bond before they can be appointed as a property and affairs deputy. That's effectively a form of insurance so that the um, protected party will be looked after if there were to be a problem. Um, and if the Office of Public Guardian thought there was a problem or, or an issue, they would look to investigate that. Um, and if there were a, a bigger problem, they would apply to court to perhaps remove that deputy. Slightly different to the Brittany scenario because um, the Free Brittany movement was about the fact that it was felt she was being abused because she was still performing concerts uh, and so forth. And her father, um, as I understand it, was taking a cut of the, the monies that were coming in, which is very different to the system we have, where we simply have uh, panel deputies that could charge for the work they undertake. Presumably, you couldn't, you couldn't have a deputy that has a, a vested financial interest. Well, that's right. There'd be a conflict of interest. And that's one of the things that the courts are so careful to guard against. Um, I suppose, in theory, it could happen. Um, the Britney scenario where you've got a father who's appointed as a deputy because knows the child very well and, and what they're thinking. Uh, but there could be a conflict, and that's why the OPG would be very careful to scrutinise that. And I think the court would need persuading as well that it was appropriate. Mm. Well, let's say let's say there is. You mentioned the Free Britney movement that 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 takes hold. They're protesting outside the Royal Courts of Justice on Fleet Street. How, how does it work in terms of getting rid of? Well, I suppose you've mentioned getting rid of a specific deputy. Is a court decision, but 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 getting rid of deputyship altogether, I suppose, is a different consideration. Well, there's a number of um, steps. Once a deputyship has been granted and concerns arise as to whether the deputy is acting in best interests, um, or perhaps even whether capacity has been been regained, um, the starting point would be a discussion with the deputy, um, and depending whether that can be resolved or, or not, you'd, you'd move to the next stage. Um, the next stage is often to make a um, request to the Office of Public Guardian to investigate an issue and decide whether deputyship is required or whether there is such a problem that you need to remove that deputy. And if there are then difficulties, an application could be made to the Court of Protection. Um, the court has got the, the power to revoke a deputy's appointment under section 16, subparagraph 7, um, and the court can impose a number of different condition conditions there. Uh, and usually, if, they, if the court takes the view the deputy is behaving um, badly or inappropriately or contravenes the authority conferred, conferred upon them, um, the, the court may well remove that, that deputy. Um, it's a bit more tricky when it comes down to welfare issues because often that's a little bit more subjective as mm -hmm. to whether the choice is right or, or wrong but when it comes to the financial side of it you've usually got an audit trail from bank statements and can see if something is amiss or not sure um so that's that's but that's getting rid of one deputy and replacing them with another what if pop stars saying i don't need deputyship at all it would be the same principle they would make an application to the court. Um, effectively, if it were like Brittany, 
where she's saying, well, I don't need a deputy anymore. She could make an application to the Court of Protection. That would be done in accordance with the Court of Protection rules of 2017, Practice Direction 9A that sets out how everything is dealt with. And there has to be a witness statement accompanying the application, just like in, in many civil and, and family cases. And it sets out the details of the deputy ship, um, the current circumstances, how the deputy ship is not being performed properly or why it's not needed and why it's in the best interest of the um, applicant for the deputy ship to be removed. Um, the Court of Protection then would consider the matter. Um, wishes and feelings would have to be considered. Um, usually they would be considered in, in private. Um, there would need to be a full um, court hearing unless there's, there's agreement. The likelihood is there would need to be um, psychiatric assessment of some form. For example, if somebody had been unwell and they say they have recovered and they're back in good health, then some evidence to that effect um, would be required. And usually that hearing would take place in private unless the court decides that there's certain material that should be published. Uh, and often then it's anonymized so that um, the identity of people is protected. So that, that's sure. general. Where, where does capacity come to? Because surely you, you have a deputy ship because you don't have capacity, but then if, you've, if you can prove that you've regained capacity, does that not undo it almost automatically? Um, the general presumption under section uh, one, the principles, mm. is a person must be assumed to have capacity unless, it's, unless it is established that he lacks capacity. So if you're making an application and you, you've said you've recovered, the judge is going to be looking at that very carefully. The caveat, of course, is that some of these um, mental health type issues are, are very complex these days, and we're, we're learning more about that. So often there will need to be some sort of um, expert evidence just explaining what's going on. But sure. the will always come, come back into play. But effectively, if it's raised, you have to do another capacity assessment? There is often another capacity assessment, yes. Because sure. the orders for um, the court of protection, there will usually be a recital indicating that he doesn't have capacity and that, that's been recognised at various stages. Um, and then, of course, if they've regained capacity, that's got to be looked at. And if they have regained capacity, then the orders are going to be discharged. Sure. Well, um, that makes sense to me. And um, as much as I hear the cries of gimme more, I'm going to exercise my prerogative and kill the lights on this podcast um, Julian, thank you. Thank you very much. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, I personally have learned a lot and it's so interesting. Thank you, Mark. My, my pleasure. Um, we will be back soon as we continue with Series 4 across what remains of this legal term. Thank you very much for listening. Keep that feedback coming in. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.